Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. By joining my Patreon community, you're growing the world of WMFA one writer at a time, plus supporting a whole community of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. And creative community is what WMFA is all about. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash W-M-F-A podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and today I'm speaking with Genevieve Hudson. Genevieve is the author of the novel Boys of Alabama, out now from Live Right. Their other books include the critical memoir A Little in Love with Everyone and Pretend We Live Here, Stories, which was a Lambda Literary Award finalist. They hold an MFA in fiction from Portland State University, and their work has appeared in Elle, McSweeney's, Catapult, Book Forum, Tin House, Bitch, and other places. They have received fellowships from the Fulbright Program, the McDowell Colony, Caldera Arts, and the Vermont Studio Center. They're a visiting fiction faculty member at Antioch University Los Angeles's MFA program, a freelance writer, and also work in advertising. Boys of Alabama tells the story of Max, a queer teenager who has just relocated with his parents from their native Germany to Alabama. Max comes to America with grief over the death of his first love, Nils, and a secret supernatural power. He can bring animals back from the dead. Max soon falls in love with Pan, a goth classmate who dreams of becoming a witch and getting out of their small town. He also joins the football team and becomes enamored of a local evangelical leader and a religion that's more dangerous than it might appear. One of my favorite things about Boys of Alabama was the mood and atmosphere Genevieve created from the first page. In a blurb, author T. Kira Madden calls the book an incantation, and that's exactly how it feels. The narrative unfolds in surreal, propulsive tones. Dreams are powerful and vivid. Max's power is magic, but it fits into the more realist logic of the narrative seamlessly, alongside Pan's desire to possess magic himself. There are touches of magical realism in the Southern Gothic, but the book is wholly its own. Like the best literary characters, these teenagers are complex. Genevieve does an amazing job bringing them to rich, complicated life. Max is fearful but powerful, tender but still susceptible to the influence of the toxic masculinity all around him. Pan, emboldened with a strong sense of self, still hides his own fears and insecurities. People you think you understand behave unexpectedly. Here, we talk about how those behaviors sometimes surprise Genevieve, too. We also talk about creating complexity in your characters, following the particular instructions a project lays out, and fiction as a vehicle for exploring what Genevieve calls capital T truth. At WMFA's Patreon page, Genevieve and I discuss the craft of writing those slippery places at the edge of reality. You can hear this and other bonus segments by visiting patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. Allowing for some surprises or for characters to act differently than we expect, I think is also like a way that helps me to kind of develop them and flesh them out more. I wanted to start you know, I, I was I was looking at some of the blurbs on the book and T. Kira Madden calls it an incantation. And that very much felt like my experience of reading it. It's such an immersive reading experience. It's such a visceral reading experience. And, and so I kind of wanted to just start there if you wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the mood of the book and kind of how that how that came apart about because it, it does have a very specific sort of like atmosphere to it, I think. Yeah, I think, um, I guess the first sentences I ever put down that ended up making its way into the book were about seven years ago. I put it away for a long time. I haven't been consistently working on it for all that time. But from the very beginning, it was kind of a mood and a tone that came to me. You know, I was first thinking about these two characters, these two boys that became Max and Pan and their relationship and their dynamic and kind of the language that I used or that I felt was necessary to create and build their world. And that was anything from the way that 
you know, they looked at each other, the ways that their connection registered in the body, um, the kind of tenderness and also a little bit of fear that was mixed in. And I really allowed language to guide me a lot through this book. Um, I thought a lot about sentences and sonics and the way that um, kind of images or feelings and emotions were built from just the way sound would register on the page and that, that kind of interplay. So I think it's um, it makes a lot of sense to me that you kind of talk about a tone because I really do think that that kind of tonal register was what was that first push that kind of sustained my um, my like beginning interest in the book and kind of figuring out like how to keep this mood and this feeling going. And I guess, you know, to kind of talk about what T. Kira was saying too, like with the incantation is that there was a sense of um, kind of calling forth, I think that I was trying to do or that I felt that was kind of happening when I started writing it. So um, maybe that kind of gives a little bit of background or backstory to how some of those processes started coming forth. Yeah, absolutely. I, I kept thinking as I was reading it and, and exactly, you know, echoing what you just said, there's such beautiful uh, word choice and there's such, be- there are such beautiful turns of phrase and, and sometimes kind of strangely beautiful and sometimes, you know, just sort of like these very poetic expressions. And, and I kept thinking that it felt like writing that you had like really like given yourself permission to write or sort of like, you know, like the, the self-critical voice that's kind of always like, that's, yeah is that how you want to say that? You know what I mean? It felt like very free, I think. Yeah, I think that that's true. I think that, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, right now kind of starting to move, you know, into new writing projects or, you know, new shorter pieces that I'm writing after having written, worked on this book for so many years, I do really see how you get into like one project has, I think, a specific set of instructions that it, that either you provide to it or kind of just like get built out of working with it. And that has to do with, I think, like the way you allow yourself to write and the tones that you inhabit and the language that you're using. And I do think there was something, you know, there was definitely a kind of flow and a kind of writing that I was doing with this novel that felt very specific to this one project. Well, to kind of take it back to the beginning, um, you said you had started this initially seven years ago. Can you talk about what the beginning of it was for you? Yeah. Uh, So the very beginning of this novel actually was really different than, um, than what it has become because it was not set in Alabama. It um, did not kind of have this political underpinning to it um, or even like the, the religious tones that it does now. You know, I was just finishing graduate school and I was about to move from Portland, Oregon, where I live now to Amsterdam on a Fulbright fellowship where I was going to work on a project that sort of investigated the role that magic realism and repurposed fairy tales and normalized magic played in contemporary literary fiction. Mm, That's so cool. Yeah, it was a really um, kind of interesting uh, project to really like dive into for a while. And I actually ended up staying in Amsterdam for about maybe six years. But so I was, you know, I was kind of getting ready to leave and I was just writing kind of fragments at the time. And a lot of it felt a little bit more like mm, dreamlike, or maybe there were some incantations. It was very fragmented and it played a lot with magic. And so there were these two boys, but they were existing in a space that felt a little boundless and like made up in some ways. And I think that was one of the reasons maybe that I had trouble really grounding the story at the time is because it kind of lacked like some of the underpinnings of like a real visceral embodied setting. So I was really interested though in like the interplay between these two boys, the relationship, this kind of like push and pull or pursue or distance or thing that was going on with them and um, kind of like this nascent young queer love. I wrote quite a lot of it actually, a lot of that project and ultimately ended up putting it away. And then years later, um, when I was in Amsterdam and I'm traveling back to visit my family in Alabama, which is where I grew up, I really, I started writing about Alabama. And then suddenly kind of these two projects seemed like they were in conversation with each other. And I kind of began again from the beginning, um, really grounding 
this relationship that I'd been exploring in a in a really physical place that I knew very intimately. Right. And and when you made that switch was because uh, definitely something I want to talk about. I think it's so it's so effective that Max is an outsider. He's German. And so his family moves to this small town in Alabama for his father's job. And he's just kind of experiencing this place for the first time. So you get to make a lot of really specific kinds of observations through him. Um, was that something that when you when you made the switch to Alabama, like that it seemed like maybe one of the character characters like took to that place maybe a little easier than another or how did that work it felt important to me that that you know this kind of and actually this is an element that i had kept from the transition was that one of the boys max even in its first incantation had like moved to this new place and encountered you know this this person who desperately wanted to get out of the new place that they were kind of trying to call home and so when I uh, started switching this to Alabama, it also happened that I was living in Europe and, um, you know, I had a European partner and the two of us would uh, come back to Alabama to visit my family. And I think for me, I hadn't lived in Alabama in a long time. And I had this sense of returning to a place that was deeply familiar with, uh, with eyes that kind of cast it in a new stranger light. And also was bringing along my, you know, European partner who was very taken with some of the kind of strangeness of Southern culture and kind of enamored by it and was also not triggered by a lot of it in the way that I was, like kind of found some of the strangeness or things that I felt um, to be like maybe darker, to have some like levity in them and also was, you know, found it to be like a very welcoming place. And some of that tension was very interesting to me. And it also is true that in Tuscaloosa has a huge Mercedes Benz factory in it. And so a lot of German people will kind of immigrate there. And I, so I was like, and it would be interesting to kind of recast like what this experience is like as a stranger coming to this place that could be seen as very dark, but could also be seen as like very, you know, open and welcoming to certain kinds of people. Right. Yeah. I love, um, there's a, there's a next door neighbor woman that Max is, is especially kind of enamored of. And, and you get as the reader, you also get his mom's perspective. I think she's talking to her sister kind of just being like, he's like, this woman's like so tacky and gaudy and awful. And like, he loves her. And she just like walks around with these dead azaleas and like, (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about like kind of what, and I mean, I think a lot of this comes through in the novel, but you know, what are those sort of darker elements that, that you see, that maybe your partner at the time was a little bit uh, a little bit more positive about. Well, I think some of the sort of um, niceties or the way that you know, kind of Southern culture can be very friendly seeming. Mm-hmm. And I do think that there is, you know, I don't want to like flatten that too much because I do think that Southern culture can really truly be welcoming and in a lot of ways and like. There's, there is a lot of like sitting on the front porches together and gathering in community and this kind of stuff. But a lot of it also can be a little bit of a front. You know, I remember my mom uh, moved to Alabama 40 years ago now. But, um, you know, when she did move there, one thing that she said she was taken with really was like, people were always inviting her to come over and saying like, you know, call me whenever you want, you know, and like, y'all just come over and anytime you want. But she quickly realized that wasn't an open invitation the way it seemed. And, you know, the first time she kind of tried to follow through with that, there was a lot of awkwardness because there were some kind of understandings by people like in the community that you didn't actually do that. You know, also like the sense of like, of, the, the deep history of like racism and segregation and oppression that infiltrates all aspects of culture, obviously throughout America and specifically in the South, that is pervasive and you see playing out in um, every aspect of like Southern life and community. And I also think that, you know, like the, the religious culture, like the Southern religious culture, it has a lot of inherent contradictions too, because there is a lot of like, people are very vocal about relational healing, you know, being kind to your neighbor. 
eternal love through Jesus Christ and forgiveness. And yet, you know, it's very clear that there are certain people that are extended this love, this kind of like love and forgiveness and openness to, and, you know, other people who don't necessarily fit the sort of like class or race or like gender conformity are not extended that same kind of salvation always, even though maybe in words they are, in action they are not. Right. And, you know, something I was thinking too, as you were talking, um, and I've definitely experienced this in places, and I'm from, I'm from West Virginia, so kind of like is and is not the South, like, so, so it's, it's, it's familiar, but it's not quite the same. But um, I've definitely, you know, lived places where um, I've, I've very quickly understood that, like, that sense of welcoming doesn't apply when you stay. If you're visiting, it's like, okay, well, you know, this is nice and we can be charming and whatever. But then it's like, oh, well, you're here. What are you doing here? What's your like, what's your game here? Kind of, you know? Yeah, I agree with you. I think that that is, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where there's like a veneer to to certain kinds of like culture within community. And, you know, if you're just passing through, it can seem one way. But when you stay and sort of start to root and ground, more is revealed to you and that's when like the real truths of how things are start to come out. Yeah. And I want to circle back, you know, you, you brought up whiteness, which is a, a huge part of the book, you know, drawing on the, the past and present of, of living in the South. And then also Max coming from Germany and that history is a source of like a lot of tension in terms of what he's kind of trying to grapple with um, for himself, but also like kind of how, like it's something that like his new friends and his like football teammates like treat very carelessly. Like they call him Nazi a lot and he like asks them not to, but they kind of don't get why he would mind. And, um, and I mean, especially, you know, right now that kind of unpacking that seems particularly important. Um, how did you approach that in the book? Cause it's hard to, I mean, obviously it's, it's a difficult thing for a lot of reasons, but it's also in some ways not the primary focus of the book, but you give it a very kind of solid framework. Um, and I imagine that took a lot of, a lot of finessing and, and editing and drafting. Yeah. You know, I just, I think it's important to address, you know, whiteness as like in the same way that, you know, I think oftentimes when we talk about race, whiteness is seen as the default and something that, you know, it kind of falls outside of that. But like to talk about whiteness is to also talk about race. And and especially in literature, it's so often assumed that the characters are white. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, coming from Alabama and coming from, you know, a, a, an area that was like extremely diverse, um, but was really ruled by like a culture of white supremacy, like all of America is um, I found it very like important to talk about the way that like a um, like if you look at you know obviously Max was coming from Germany and Germany has like a long you know history also of of like genocide and oppression and I wanted to see like these you know these white characters these white like male characters in the book that come from these legacies of like of racial violence you know how is that what does that do to like a bloodline? What does that do to a culture? And, you know, if, if it's not examined, you know, how does that also like pervert and pollute things and also like turn violence like inward also to the culture to like, like infect and I think sicken the culture itself. And, you know, I, when I looked at, you know, was looking at like these boys um, in Alabama that played on this football team that like kind of were drawn to religion, but were also drawn to some of the more like violent aspects um, of their culture. I wanted to sort of, at least if I didn't so overtly, you know, really try to draw attention to the fact that um, one of the reasons this violence was so pervasive was because they had like an ancestral history of perpetuating violence. And, you know, at the end of the book, without giving things away, there are some things that come to a head. And it felt very important to me that the violence turned inward on themselves, you know, to also see that the way that like their violence also harmed them as a culture and without collective healing, without like looking at the ways that, you know, their family members had enacted racial violence through like not just slavery, but through all of the racial injustices that have still been perpetuated in the South since then. 
that they were going to be harming themselves as well. Yeah. And so I, I really, you know, and Max at one point in the book has this kind of nightmarish dream where he like sees these, the boys that he's friends with kind of coming up from the soil and they're blind, they are blinded and they have these like guns that they're hunting with, but they can't really see what they're shooting. And he kind of is, they're blurred with like kind of German people from his past. And I also like wanted that to be there in order to show the sort of fever dream of what this kind of like violent legacy like kind of does to people and how it's stored in the body. Right. Yeah. I think the use of violence in the book is, is very interesting. And I think like something that, that really struck me was, you know, there, there's a lot of violence against animals. There's a lot of hunting. Um, there's that, is it a, is it a bird that there, there's a scene where like they're batting, they're in a batting cage with, and they've trapped this bird and like the coach has to come and like make them stop. And, and, and there are all these moments that, that really made me wince at that. Um, which I mean, you know, as a compliment to you, like they're so visceral. Um, but it was really striking to me that like to watch Max's kind of evolution. And I want to talk more about the character development generally, because I think it's incredible. But, um, you know, like Pan says to him, Pan is a vegetarian. He says to him at one point, um, you know, I can't believe you eat animal, like you have this power and you like, I can't believe that it's the, that you're like able to like put that aside and do this. And, and I think, yeah, the, the ways that that violence kind of all of, and even football, I mean, all the different ways in their life that violence kind of becomes compartmentalized and normalized that very much feels like the fabric of just their existence in a way that, you know, I think is very, is also very familiar to me, certainly with the conceptions of masculinity that, that I grew up with too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, I love sort of the, the images and like the scenes that you brought out there too, because I do think, you know, the, that example actually with Pan talking about how, you know, he's a vegetarian and how could Max not be since he, you know, cares so much about animals and brings them back to life. And there's this contradiction and like this, obvious dissociation that happens that I think has to happen in order to exist or that people feel like they're doing kind of protectively in order to not have to change, you know, in order to maintain some level of comfort. And it's like by, you know, not participating in this dissociation, it, that would necessitate some kind of radical change in your behavior, which would like upset your life, which would, you know, that's how change is really created, but I think it's, that's a hard thing to do and to look at. And, you know, Pan was a really, um, Pan as a character to me too, like also brought a lot of truth into, like was a, a way that I could, I mean, bring a lot of kind of like insight and truth into the book by like his or their like also like just contradiction, like the way that they acted in opposition to really the place that they grew up and a place that they were a part of too, because Pan also is from Alabama and, you know, is a product of Alabama culture. And I think, you know, Pan is very angry and is definitely not a character that is always doing everything right. <laughs> um, but I think that some of that tension that comes, you know, that, that is, uh, comes from feeling like such an outsider and not really knowing what to do with it because you feel like you're just kind of yelling into the void <laughs> is what creates some of this like, yeah, anger and pan too. Yeah. Well, the, well, part of what, you know, as I, after I finished the book and just kind of like reflecting on it, the more I thought about the character development, I mean, especially pan and max, um, but, but really even, minor characters i think they're all so complex in such a wonderful way and and you know you just brought it up a little bit with pan but like they they do have these very human very real fleshed out contradictions that they're sometimes they're aware of and sometimes they're not and and so it makes for such a rich reading experience to kind of try to really try to understand them better you know like max like i found max kind of frustrating sometimes it felt like he um you know like pan has has some faults but but pan is is really brave in a lot of ways that max isn't maybe and um but you know they both even have these there are ways in which they very much are kind of proud of belonging to this culture that they also feel very outside like pan clearly has this fluency 
with the teammates that he, you know, this E and Max like observes and is jealous of this kind of ease that he feels around them. Um, but Max is like, you know, I he wants to belong so much. It's like, well, I'll join the team and I'll go to the church and I'll go to the, the camp. And so to kind of watch them both sort of span the whole spectrum in their different ways, it, it, it was really, um, it was really powerful. And I would just love to talk to you about how you approach character development. Um, Cause I think it's so, it's so easy, especially to kind of like have a conflict and be like, just like, shooting your character down this like really narrow path toward the you know through and toward the conflict um so how did you how do you kind of approach um breathing more life into them you know one thing I do is as I am um I mean I think it's it's hard you know to sort of create complexity but you know I often try to think about like the expansiveness that exists within, you know, one person. And like, if I think the more that you can create like small contradictions inside a character, kind of the more realistic that can be in some ways. And also the more you can lean into some of the more frustrating sides of them. Like for Max, I think Max could be a really frustrating character. He doesn't have a lot of um, conviction or courage. And I, you know, I think Max has, the a great capacity for power also like in a supernatural way you know he can actually bring things back to life and yet he's crippled by fear and he is in a place that really needs him and in relationships with people that really need him to be able to step into his power and you know have a voice and yet he is very unable to do that and he's very taken and captivated with people that can. And I think that that was something that I, that I also kind of, as these characters started develop, to develop was, you know, I, I knew that Max would be attracted to people who had strong voices and who pe- people who seemed to be aligned with like their higher selves or able to like step into their power because he wasn't able to do that. And I think often we're looking for or attracted to something in another person that we're lacking within ourselves, you know, and that thing that they have that embodies a lack within us can feel very magnetic. Um, And so I think that uh, that became an important way to do that with me for, for me, like a a way of like thinking about the way that characters as I'm developing them play off of each other. And, you know, also kind of just thinking about um, real people that I know and the ways that they, kind of act or will surprise me in certain situations and how human that is. So allowing for some surprises or for characters to act differently than we expect, I think is also like a way that helps me to kind of develop them and flesh them out more. Right, right. Were there some some moments in writing that you remember where um, where you did find yourself surprised by the, the path a character had taken or the way something had happened? You know, yeah, I think that the the moments where Max has developed this like friendship with this uh, with this girl named Billy, and I think in some of those scenes, the way that they played off of each other and the ways that kind of um, they maybe triggered each other too, I wasn't expecting that to happen, or like the ways that like what Billy kind of revealed. Uh, to Max about himself was something that I um, didn't know was going to happen until I started writing it. And that also revealed like a deeper layer, a deeper layer was revealed to me about Max. And I won't say exactly, you know, exactly what it is, because I think that that happens like later on in the book, but, you know, Max kind of acts out in a way that is really parroting these guys on the football team and I didn't know that he had really like kind of internalized their behavior in that same way or that he um, would kind of be aggressive in the ways that it showed that he would be. Right, right. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And that that makes perfect sense. Um, and it was surprising actually even to read, um, you know, even with the um, the kind of arc that he was already on, I was I was a little bit um just startled by how how it escalates the scene that you're describing and and I think to me too you know that really speaks to how um you know how how inescapable that you know I know such an like an overused phrase now but like how inescapable that toxic masculinity really is in those in those atmospheres right 
and it's interesting to watch like it's interesting to watch too and part of what you know again like part of the complexity is that it's I would love to get your thought about whether this like you think this is plausible but like it seems almost kind of also like a, an, a some kind of active rebellion that Max is doing and and he's got these like very rational very liberal very understanding parents like but he's just like kind of diving headlong into this like much more closed-minded sort of world um while his mother is kind of like standing shocked trying to figure out how to make him stop <laughs> right yeah and i think you know sometimes again one of the things about this new culture that i think is so interesting to max is that it is so different from what he's used to it is it's very different from his parents who maybe are a little bit more even keeled less radical less extreme a little uh you know a little more um conventional and I think, you know, he's in this exploratory time in his life where he is questioning the, you know, foundations that his parents have laid for him and wants to sort of develop his own sense of identity and is um, maybe also enabled to do that because his parents also know that he needs to be able to do that. And so he's, but he's kind of experimenting with um, more inflammatory parts of culture than his parents would want him to. Right, right. Um, can we talk a little bit about the the sort of use of magical realism in the book and, and the way that you incorporate that? Um, it's interesting because I had just taken, um, last weekend, I did this online writing class um, with this writer, Claire Beams. Do you know? I don't. Um, she's, um, she's based in Pittsburgh where I am. Um, and she had a new novel out this year called the illness lesson. Um, and she's super yeah. interesting. And she did this, she did this very short workshop, like our local bookstore is kind of doing these, um, author led workshops on, on strangeness in fiction. And, and so I've been thinking already a lot about like how you kind of embed these things and, and how they sort of pop up in a way that, that keeps the logic of the narrative kind of intact, you know? And you do that really well. And and I wonder um, if you could just kind of talk a little bit about how, first of all, like what, is that something that kind of often comes up for you in your writing that you feel drawn to as a, as a genre or a technique? It is. And it used to be, you know, integrating some normalized magic or some elements of supernatural into my otherwise kind of like literary fiction has been something that I explored a lot when I was in graduate school and kind of like first starting to develop my voice. And I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting because when I was very young and first starting to, to really read deeply, I was like many children, I guess, but I was very drawn to worlds that um, kind of blurred between like our world and like a imagined world or a fantasy world. And maybe some of that early reading kind of, has like stayed in me a little bit and is like kind of coming out or some of those interests. But another, you know, thing that when I think about the way that I integrate magic and why I'm drawn to that is I have a hard time. I think like sometimes making things really happen in my fiction, like plotting things through. And I'm so much more interested in character development, like the emotional topography of um, the people that I'm writing about, the, the interaction between the two of them. And when I first started playing with magic realism, I realized that this was like by introducing something that was unexpected to me and that was unexpected to the world that I lived in, that I had to react as a writer in ways that like expanded my imagination and surprised me and also moved the story along in ways that I felt like it really needed or was more interesting to me. And um, so I think in some ways I started really writing in this way to first integrate strangeness, to see what that did to like the plot, like just the regular plotting. Um, and uh, as a way to kind of cast more of a some kind of, maybe it's not always like intended from the beginning, but like a metaphor, or like a deeper reading into the story. Like with this story, with In Boys of Alabama, you know, Max is a queer teenage boy who is, feels like an outsider, feels like he has this strangeness and also really does have 
a bizarre gift that he can't tell anybody about or that he doesn't feel like he can tell anybody about. And, you know, there's a long history of the way that monsters or that fiction about like, um, yeah, vampires or monsters or like Frankenstein can get read through like a lens of queerness and the way that like the kind of monstrosity of the characters can be seen as like very frightening to people because they're not understood or there's something that's very different to them about the way that they fit into culture. And I think that some of that is going on here with Max where, you know, this power is actually a source of great strength and heal, like actual healing. Um, and yet it is something that he's, he's like internalized as a deep secret that he has to hide from people. And that's actually going to, become toxic to him because of the way it's going to like hide and cast him outside of society even more. And I think that that can be seen as a little bit of the way that he's dealing with his own queerness too. Right. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. And, and along with that, I really like then how the, this gift that he has is kind of this, um, like he, and it's something that he and Pan share in this very intimate way. Um, Because he's really the only person that knows and Pan is such a caretaker for it. You know, he, he, he has a kind of kind of complicated relationship with this ability that Max has as well. But you know, he, he definitely values it and sees it as something that that should be nourished and, and nurtured and used. Yeah, because Pan is like the embracer of all things weird. You yeah. know, he's like, you're a weird, you're even more of a weirdo than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Spread the love with WMFA merch, items designed to spark creative vibes for you and the artists in your life. Shop at WMFAPodcast.com slash merch. That's WMFAPodcast.com slash M-E-R-C-H. I'm just curious, did you play with at all in previous drafts this power of his being sort of the magic being like a kind of more pervasive part of the story or something that more characters were aware of in terms of like... You know, I'm thinking of stuff of of stuff like um, I don't know, like Karen Russell stories or something too, where sometimes it's just kind of like it's part of the larger setting that she's creating, and and here it seems to be very the magical realism is very specific to Max. Yeah, I you know I did not do that in this. Um, it, I I thought about kind of what I thought about, or maybe earlier drafts had leaned into a little bit more of like the strangeness of the setting and collapsed a little bit more of like questions between the real like the our real waking world and like a dream world or like a world where things were even more slightly askew but I think anytime I wrote into that I felt like maybe it was confusing the narrative more and would kind of pull it back to being a little bit more contained around Max but I do do really appreciate it and think I will explore in the future larger narratives that um, integrate that those kinds of elements on a on a broader scale. Yeah, I was just curious because it's so um, like I th- and I think part of of how it is such a seamless experience for the reader, like the way that it's written, is that it is very matter of fact, right? And and I think I had read an interview with you. And you said, and this makes sense, that you establish, you kind of establish the world first, and then you introduce this thing. And so it doesn't feel quite so disorienting for the reader, or maybe that's not it, but it feels like something, the reader's able to take it in stride. It's like, okay, well, I've, I, I trust you now, we've gotten this far, and, and now you're telling me this, so okay, sure. I liked that as a, as a kind of approach to, to weave something like this in without it kind of starting to feel false or feel gimmicky or, you know, which, which are things it does not at all. But I just wanted to talk about that. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, um, like a great point and a great question. I think that, you know, for me, I really wanted, um, I wanted, I felt like by containing the, the power in this instance, it was a really, like, I felt stronger juxtaposition against like Max and his actual power that you know is validated as the reader we know that exists and the question of like you know the the spiritual community that has these you know these practices of poison drinking and snake handling handling and communing with god and then pan who wants badly to be a witch and is casting spells and you know the magic or the divinity that exists outside in the community does not seem to have the same level of truth as max Max's does. And yet Max is drawn to their kind of um, posturing 
around like their connection with supernatural while within him again it truly exists and yet he's looking outward for validation and truth yeah oh i love that yeah absolutely well, I could talk about this forever, but do you want to, uh, do you mind if we switch tracks a little bit to just kind of talk about, about your writing life more broadly? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know you, you also, you have a short story collection as well, and you also have a sort of memoir essay review hybrid kind of, kind of piece to it. And so do you want to start by maybe talking about you know, what, what this experience of writing your first novel, how this kind of compares to when you sit down to write a short story or you write a kind of nonfiction piece? You know, I, I think that, you know, first talking about just writing nonfiction versus writing fiction, um, I feel a little more like deeply connected and rooted in my fiction practice. And that has always felt like the way of, um, kind of writing or connecting with language, um, that I feel the most at home in because I just love the way that you can really um, stretch out in terms of like what is truth and what is possible. And you don't have to adhere as closely to your version of events. You can kind of get at like a, a deeper, more like powerful capital T truth by maybe like creating things that aren't true through storytelling. Um, but I've always found actually that writing nonfiction and essays comes a lot easier and quicker to me, at least in terms of like the velocity of writing them out, you know, it's still very hard, but fiction is really like a slow moving process for me where it, it is rarely, it really happens that I'm just like sitting down and can write for like hours and kind of look up and I'm like, wow, like I was just in that where, you know, it's like this, this hard, like, sentence by sentence. Um, right. What time is it now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, with essay writing, sometimes I do have that situation of getting really pulled in. And I think it's because sometimes there's just more of a, of a struct. I mean, you're thinking about things that truly really happened. And so you have this kind of raw material that you're working with and playing around with that feels a little bit more um, easy to generate for me. And, you know, this, it's interesting, the thing about writing um, such a long project like a novel is that you're really immersed in it for years. And it is that, you know, I'm a morning writer, I get up in the morning and I'll write. And so for years of my life, I was getting up and like joining this world and these characters and thinking about them. And, you know, some days were felt really good about the project. Other days I was really discouraged. And, but it was always this constant that I was living alongside in my life and the tone was there. And, you know, at the deeper I got into the project, everything in my life started hooking into this narrative, you know, something would happen, or I'd hear something, and I'd be like, Oh, that could be something that comes into the novel, or what, what would Pan think about that? Or would Matt, what would, you know, does this, does that relate to Max in this way? And it's just everything is like in conversation suddenly. And I think, you know, coming to the end of a project like that, there really is a big void that opens up in your life. And, you know, during the time of writing this, I would write short stories sometimes, and that felt like a nice kind of reprieve and something that felt like, you know, it feels nice to be able to complete and finish something. But there is something that I really appreciate and find very grounding about having a long project that you're working on consistently um, alongside your life. And I'm excited to kind of dive back in and start something new that, that I can kind of build up in that way even though, you know, along the way, I will always be still writing short stories. And that feels like a, like maybe a, a, another way to like engage with like an issue or an idea that I have that doesn't fit into the novel, but that feels like important. Right, right. Well, that's really reassuring to like, you know, because I, I'm working on a novel project, which I've been working on for like, I don't know, maybe like four years now. And there are definitely days where it's like, why am I, what, why is this, I'm just going to throw all of this out the window. And so it's, it's nice to reframe it as this like kind of constant companion. I like, right. I like that take on it. Um, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about kind of sustaining that momentum over so long, especially, um, you know, when you're working on other projects or you maybe have other jobs, like were there moments where you thought about putting it aside? Well, you did put it aside, you said, right, for a while. Yeah, you know, I think, yes. Definitely. There were times for sure when I felt very discouraged and times when it was not as much a part of my life, you know, as 
as other times. Um, I'm a pretty obsessive person though. And so I think that when I really get going on a, on something or a project and it feels unfinished, there really is a momentum in me to like, okay, this isn't working. How do I make it work? If this isn't working, how do I, you know, it really, I really get like fired up around that. And then when I read something, I'm at once again, like when I finish reading a novel, I'm like, okay, I can do this. Like, I have to be able to like go back in there. Like I want this. And there's an obsessive quality to my mind that I think really can fixate. And so that really drives me and hooks me back in all the time. And I, but I do think that there, it was important for me to have moments where I would step away for a little while and give myself some space. Like I would finish a draft or I would, you know, go to a a residency, which were so helpful to me going to residencies um, during this process. And then I would need a break for a little while. And I think that that's really important to like, kind of let your brain like just get like washed through with like new ideas and put it on pause for a little, for a little while. And then you can come back and see it in a fresher way too. Yeah. The first residency I went to, I remember like, you know, I would be with the project for like five or six hours a day, which was like, you know, three or four more than I usually was in a good day. And it was like, there was this period of like, it was like, I hadn't like trained correctly or something, you know, like sort of feel like, I think it was like three weeks. And I remember thinking like, oh, I couldn't have done this for another week. Like, I didn't pace myself correctly. Right, 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 right. (laughs) As kind of the themes of the project emerge, how do you sort of go back in? Um, You know, do you do kind of more sort of targeted like okay well now I'm gonna go in and like make sure that this element is like fleshed out more kind of how do you um sorry do you know what I'm saying does this mean I just have like quarantine plus heat wave like brain fatigue so I just totally zonked I apologize no I totally get that question I mean I think that it's every time you kind of sit down and write deeper into the book and like you said like themes start to emerge and you start to kind of see more broadly, like what you're writing towards. And then you think, I mean, for me, I would think like, okay, so how does that reshape the beginning of the book then? Mm -hmm. Like, how do I start to plant seeds that sort of start to move towards this in a more overt or less overt way? And how do I build this out? Is this a theme that I want to be talking about? I think that's something that I was confronted with that I wasn't necessarily expecting is this question of like, are these the things I want to be writing about and putting out into the world? Mm. You know, because I think, you know, when you're starting to write, you're really just writing whatever stories are coming to you. And you're not really thinking of, at least I wasn't thinking of as much about like the kind of stories I was telling. And so I think that started to happen to me where I started to think like, what ending do I want to have? What note do I want to leave the readers with? You know, what am I trying to say with this? And, you know, I don't want this to be like a polemic or something where I'm like, this is what I'm, I'm telling you like a, a story with this of like a moral story and you should take this very specific thing out of it. But I do think that more generally you are writing towards like themes and those themes, I think, you know, you should be really aware of them, at least some of them, as those are something that you are like engaging with. And then like kind of fine tune and work through and edit those. Well, and I think you make a really great point that really resonates with me too. Is like, I think when you do, um, when you start writing, it's so easy, at least it was for me to feel like so little agency, you know, to kind of almost like over romanticize the sort of like imagination aspect of it. And just be like, okay, well, you're just getting what's coming and that's, and that's it. And then when you, when you kind of, it is, I think, a real shift to start to think like, what are my, um, like, what are my goals with this? What do I want this? Like, who am I talking to? What do I want them to know? And it's like, again, like you're saying, not in a way that manipulates it so heavy handedly, but like there is, there is a hand and you have to kind of like acknowledge that and, and use it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I always like to ask everybody the same question at the end of our conversations, um, which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? That is such a beautiful question. You know, I I think for me, um, it feels like making something that like resonates 
in like my body in a specific way. I think, you know, like I sit down most mornings to write and I can be quite a strong critic of myself. And I think that, you know, every time I sit down to write, there's like something that I can find beautiful about what I've written, whether it's an idea or like a sentence or even a direction that I want to go toward. And I think sitting with like reframing away from like the, that like self-critical voice and towards um, like kind of gratitude toward to what you can make and like what you are making and the ability that like to make and generate um, words and writing and work in this time feels like a really special thing to be able to do and to like hold gratitude for that is something that makes me feel um, satisfied with myself and it gives me a sense of joy and purpose. And to be able to sit with that, I think, is is where that comes in for me. Oh, that's so beautiful. I know exactly what you mean, too, where you're like that one thing that you can kind of dial in on and be like, oh, I do actually not hate myself for, <laughs> for having made this thing. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Because I think that, you know, we can really um, get down on ourselves as writers and be so critical of the work that we're making. And we live in such a critical society. And, you know, I was, um, we talked earlier about T. Kira Madden, and she was in conversation with me for one of the interviews or kind of virtual events I did for my book. And she asked me a question that our friend Melissa Phoebos had asked her. And, you know, that was, what is like your favorite part of your book, mm. whether that's like a line or a paragraph or a part, like, what do you really love about your book? And I think that way of reframing is also really beautiful because I think it can be embarrassing almost or shameful for writer for us to think about like, what do we love about it? You know, there's all these things we can point to where we would make it better or change it, but to sit in kind of like gratitude and happiness about something that we've created feels really powerful. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Do you remember what you said? Um, I do. I um, I said that I really loved my prologue. My opening. Oh, yeah. yeah. About that, that I always kind of feel really proud about. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for making the time today. This was really fun. Um, and I loved the book. Well, thank you so much. Your questions were wonderful. And I loved, I loved talking to you about this. So I appreciate you having me on. Of course. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on iTunes to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallastier or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Andy Cubis. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is part of the Lit Hub Radio Network and is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.